I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you were listening to Close Read, the podcast for the Incurable Reader, on which we are back together again. The three of us are, you know, the normal, the normal crew. We love having Ian around. We love having Sean around. But, you know, it's uh, it's great to get the gang back together again. And there'll be episodes where we'll even have maybe three of us plus Sean. Or, you know, Tim might have to duck out because of things in his life, such as new life in his life. Babies. And uh, yeah, exactly. But But you know what? It feels right. It feels right to end the year, to end 2022 the three of us talking about a really interesting and well-written book. So, so Tim, it's been a little while since the people have heard from you, unless of course they're listening to the place thing, but how the heck are you? I'm really good. I would like to say something, David, you and Heidi can see what's happening in the background of my condo. It's a dank There's, basement. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not a dank basement. It just looks it's, like um, just kidding. It's piled up with boxes of books because Tomorrow, the bookshelves that we have longed for since we moved into this place are going up on the wall. We are having like nice. built-in bookshelves. There are some a collection of close readers made a gift to Galen and I for our wedding, and it was a very generous amount. And that is contributing to the bookshelves, and they are finally going up tomorrow. I am like ecstatic about it. The only bad thing is apparently amid all of the kind of um, the shipping problems that are still kind of happening around the world, our rolling ladder is not ready to be installed. So the bookshelves will be installed, but the rolling ladder part will not be installed yet. So yeah, yeah, it feels like a Sunday without the cherry, but but still, but just still to get my books cream. on the wall, I'm thrilled. It's still ice cream, exactly. Well, that's amazing. And uh, we can't wait for you to um, take all kinds of pictures of that and post them on the Facebook group so that all the people can see them. Yeah, and it's going to And see inside your apartment and, and lose a little bit of the privacy that you cling to so so uh, <laughs> right. so dramatically. So desperately. So desperately, yeah. Um, well, that's amazing. Heidi, how are you? I'm fine. I can't compete with that. Tim is winning the game today of how everybody winning is doing. Winning the game doing. of life. Exactly. You are. <laughs> Heidi, did you ever play the game of life? Many a that, time. Like, many, it, many a time. And I always try to have... Do you enjoy have, it? Oh, yeah. Um, I always tried to have the most kids. <laughs> and I... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I always tried to hold on which job did i want you know when you like pull a career i always really yeah. uh it wasn't doctor or lawyer even though they made the most money there was one that was like meaningful work you know and i was really wanted oh, to do uh, that one because i just like played the game of life like i wanted to live it instead of trying to like play mm -hmm. the actual game which is just to accumulate wealth <laughs> here's the real question though okay is it wait i mean hold on yeah. i would just wait yeah. is that how you win the game of life yeah like you play the game you go through the board and then you go to retirement and you either retire in sunny acres or which was the one that you wanted right or like shady, pottersville yeah. shady lane yeah. <laughs> Right. Shady Lane. Oh, I didn't know and I was that. Like, so, as long as I've got eight kids in the back of my car, I'm going down to Shady I'm Lane. Good. Yeah. yeah. Just to be clear, we're talking about a board game, right? 
Yeah, the we're not game talking of life. about. I mean, we're, yeah. Oh, and I, I thought we were talking, talking about track. a metaphor. Earth. Yeah, I always took the college track too. I just like played the game the way I wanted to live it, mm. and mm. then I would play it with my kids, and they were like, "Why don't you want to? Why don't you just like try something new?" And I'm like, "I cannot do that. I have to follow mm. the rules I believe in <laughs> for this dumb board game." Did you say, because kids, I'm trying to teach you what life is really about? That is probably what I was thinking, sadly enough. (laughs) (laughs) Modeling good behavior. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't deviate. Speaking of life, what's the verdict on the cereal? Oh, I love. Cinnamon life's the best one. Cinnamon life cereal. The other life, it just, it lacks that kind of pizzazz that we need. Yeah, it's like when you end up in Shady Lane. Yeah, exactly. it's like ending up on Shady Lane. Yeah, yeah. man, cinnamon life. Like I can the best, eat that. Right? Oh, it's so good, David. I feel like you probably have a top cereal right off the top of your head. What is it? Don't think too much. What is it? <laughs> yeah. Well, Go. that's a loaded question. Go. What do you mean by top? Don't see you're your thinking favorite. too much. Just say it, dude. Oh, my Come favorite. On. What's my favorite? Apple Jacks. Apple Jacks. Oh, yeah, Apple Jacks is a is. strong Apple call. Jacks milk is like, yeah, like the post-cereal milk. It's the milk. whole experience when it comes to Apple Jacks. You've got that cere- that cinnamon vibe. You know, there's a little bit of cinnamon to it. There's It's sugary, but it's not as sugary as like the marshmallows and Lucky Charms, which make your teeth feel weird. It doesn't turn soggy right away like other cereals do. And uh, then the milk is delicious at the end. I don't even like milk. So See, it makes milk I, good. I'm with you because... Everybody likes Lucky Charms. Everybody picks Lucky Charms. But I I don't like cereal that has like only one good part to it. Like I want it to be consistent so that every right. bite tastes exactly the same. I'm not just like waiting for marshmallows. Right. Which are not that mm. good anyway. I mean, marshmallows I do like the good. way they feel on my teeth. So oh. that's how you and I are different. But oh my gosh. That's yeah, you probably I, like the beach do you like too. Lucky Charms, Heidi? Did you That's like what Lucky I'm Charms? Talking about. Lucky Charms is like, it's never oh, my I, favorite because that just, you just want the marshmallows and then oh, you get oh, like oh, disappointed. Oh. I don't feel like you should be disappointed in any bite of a bowl of cereal. My favorite is Berry Berry Kicks, but I also like <laughs> Golden Grams and I very much like Cinnamon Life. You know what else is good is honey. You kind of brought it back. You kind of brought it back to Cinnamon Life, didn't you? It was just like I'm going to go through a series of likes just to kind of secure the point by mentioning Cinnamon Life again. (laughs) Okay, well, we are actually here not to discuss cereal. Just for the record, I don't know if we've if we've made that clear. We're here to talk about a novel called My Name Is Asher Lev. It's a novel by Haim Potok. And it was published in uh, March of 1972 and is kind of one of the like classics of mid-century. Is 1972 mid-century enough for me to call it mid-century? Are we cool with that? Sure. Okay. Is it sure. late mid-century? Late mid-century American lit. Uh, and this book was nominated multiple years in a row. I know, I know that there's a lot of you know, really loyal, close readers who really love this book and have mentioned it for years and years. And I'm very excited to be reading it. And I think, as it turns out, it's a good book to read this time of year. Do you guys like to read books that take place in the winter in the winter or is it too much winter? Like, what's your verdict on this? I like it in the winter. I like winter books in the winter. Okay, same, same. Okay, but before we get into the book, Tim, we need to talk about something. Yeah. We need to talk about uh, Classical You. Because, oh, yeah. So I've got a few. I want to just drop a few bullet points here about Classical U. And then I think you're going to have to fill in some gaps for me. 
Okay. So are are you, so you ready for this? You ready to do a little bit of a, this is impromptu. Tim, like doesn't, rapid fire. Tim doesn't know rapid we're doing fire. this. So what some people might know is that Classical U has a subscription service with access to over 70 plus courses. There's, a, there's just courses on all kinds of things. Uh, classroom teaching, foreign languages, Latin, and which is a foreign language. Uh, I meant to say literature as that next one. And then now Shakespeare. Because Tim yeah. McIntosh has done a course for Classical U on Shakespeare. Tim, could you tell the people, could you tell the people listening to this podcast all about your course and what's going on there? Because while you're doing that, I want to just pr- prepare listeners. Classical U has sent us some coupon codes. Those coupon mm. codes are going to give people access to all of Classical U for, you know, there's going to be different tiers here. So I'll share that in a second. But but why don't you explain what you were doing over there at Classical U yeah. and then we'll give them the links. So Classical U, the way that I think about who Classical U is, is they're kind of the continuing ed platform for classical teachers. It's not just for classical teachers. It's for anybody who wants to kind of educate themselves in the classical Christian tradition. But Classical U is like the platform where if you want to educate yourself, that's where you go. So um, I have an approach to teaching Shakespeare that's based on the fact, on, on this conviction. My conviction is that Shakespeare is kind of like widely acknowledged, the greatest English-speaking playwright, maybe the greatest playwright in world history. Maybe he's like the greatest English poet in history. That's a little bit more open to debate. But nobody really questions Shakespeare's greatness. And yet, (laughs) our students graduate over and over and over being bored by Shakespeare. I mean, and if you've ever seen a Shakespeare play that's well done, it's anything but boring. It's thrilling and dramatic and energetic. So if our students are graduating being bored by Shakespeare, it might not be Shakespeare's problem. It might not be the student's problem. It might be our problem. It might be like the way that we're teaching Shakespeare. Hmm. So I've kind of developed this approach to teaching Shakespeare, which is performance first, literary analysis second or third. So um, I've just got like some tricks to basically encourage students in the classroom to be able to get up on their feet and begin performing Shakespeare. And from those performances, the meaning of the text begins to just kind of draw itself mm. out. So, Hey, can, can I just say something? Yeah. yeah. So my kids are in a, in a co-op, we homeschool. And my kids, my oldest is 11. So my boys that are 9 and 11, Coulter and Jeremiah, they are in a co-op. And on Wednesdays, they do Shakespeare. Mm. And the mom, who's our, our friend Jenny, who is running that, she subscribed to this course. Well, she's subscribed to Classical U and she's been watching your course. And she was raving about it. Oh, Bethany really? told me how much she loved it. And this, this is even teaching Shakespeare like excerpts of plays like they're doing Midsummer this this winter. And right before Christmas, they're gonna, we're all going to go over to her house and they're going to do a performance and all that. So even with nine and 11-year-olds, like kids that young, your course is opening up how to teach Shakespeare with these kids. So I can't tell you how happy that makes me. I mean, so what we did in this course was Classical U located this beautiful 
Theater in downtown Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It used to be a church, actually. It still has stained glass. It's this beautiful space. And I went in there with five students. They were 10th and 11th graders who had almost no acting experience. And a couple of them knew nothing about Shakespeare. Hmm. Like when I say nothing, like I asked one of them off stage, you know, what do you think of Romeo and Juliet? And he said, who? So, <laughs> and by the end of the week, I'm not kidding you, you just by the face. end of the week, the poor child, these kids were just um, incredible. Mm. They had become actors and, you know, we're quizzing them off stage. Actually, we kind of like, we recorded them. We just said, Hey, what do you think of Shakespeare and how having kind of like gone through this? Oh my gosh. He's really fun. So yeah, <laughs> cool. I shouldn't go on and on, but I'm well, tempted to go on and on. Well, Thanks for asking about so, it. So yeah, so what what they did is they gave us two coupon codes. So this is actually going to give our listeners access to all of Classical U. So there's, you know, our friend Josh Gibbs has has courses on there. Uh, my dad has done courses on there. There's there's all kinds of topics, whether you're a teacher uh, in a school or a homeschool parent, there's, there's something for you there. Or if you just want to continue your own education, as Tim said. So there's two links, two kinds of links. And I'll post this in the show notes as well. We got one that's classical U for close reads two months. That's the link. So classical U, the letter U, and then four, the number four, close reads two months. That one is going to give people um, two free two free months when you purchase a monthly subscription. So this saves you like 40 bucks or something like that. Then there's classical U for close reads one year. And this is going to provide 25% off for the first year. Like if you pay for the whole year, you can save $54 on that subscription. All of these subscriptions come with 14 day trial. So you can go sign up. You can do it for two weeks before you have to pay anything. And uh, we'll have the instructions and the links in the the show notes for this. But um, we really appreciate classical U, uh, giving this this uh, this uh, access and this option to our listeners and uh now that Tim's back for for uh the next several weeks we figured this is the perfect time to share it and it also might be a great time like this might be something to do for you know during your christmas break it might be a great thing to sign up for as like maybe a christmas present to yourself just throwing that out there uh, maybe something to uh say that you're thankful to your spouse i don't know i'm just throwing some options out mm. here just spitballing and uh so yeah Again, all of this will be posted in the show notes over the next few weeks if you want to access it. Um, so thanks to Classical U and uh, shout out to Tim for for making that uh, great that great course. I want to say one other thing, like David said, um, there are so many good stuff. Like if Classical U does it, it's good. Like they just their brand is such a high and quality. And we'll post the trailer. The trailer. Yeah, and the trailer. Is yeah, great. Yeah, I'm really happy with the trailer. And I just want to say, if you, so there's plenty of things to look at on Classical U. And if you look at my, you might think, oh, Tim's class sounds interesting, but I'm not teaching Shakespeare. I still think, and this is because of Classical U's and the filmmakers, it's just a great watch. It's just really fun to watch these kids flower kind of right before your eyes, just being up on stage and trying Shakespeare for the first time in their life. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, thanks to Classical U. Good job by Tim. And let's let's dig in now. Let's dig into My Name is Asher Lev. Um, again, I'll post all that information in the show notes for the next few weeks um, so that you guys have access to that. Um, Tim, have you ever read My Name is Asher Lev? This is my third read. Oh, okay. Okay, so you know it pretty yeah. well then. But yeah. Heidi, this is, like me, this is your first time, right? My first time. Yeah, and I had no expectations before okay. opening the book 
whatsoever and knew nothing about it at all. I mean, I, I assumed it was going to be very, just because of Potok's work, like I expected, I guess, a certain amount of um, emphasis on the culture um, of, you know, what it means to be a Jew in America. Yeah. Um, but other than that, nothing. Yeah. It's a very Jewish book. Yeah. And there's a, okay. So there's a few different things I'm interested in talking about. And I, and I'd like to hear from you guys, obviously what you want to talk about. One is uh, I've got to, well, let me, ask, let me just ask you the two of you this, and then we can figure out how we want to approach this question. How do you guys want to talk about the complicated Jewishness of the book? And I don't mean like that we're going to try to like analyze the Jewishness of it. I mean, like it's, it can, for those of us that are not Orthodox Jews, there's a lot of stuff that we don't understand. Like there's terminology, there's traditions, there's um, images, there's prayers, there's all kinds of things that we're like maybe vaguely familiar because we've watched like a Billy Wilder movie once or something. <laughs> uh, or we've, maybe we've read a novel. But like Tim, as someone who's read this before, how much do you think, like when you read this the first time, were you making, keeping a list of all the words you didn't know and looking them up and writing definitions? Or do you think that's, no. so how would you approach this as someone who's read it? I think that um, understanding the historical moment of Hasidic Judaism in the 1950s in Brooklyn, I think is very important. I, I don't, I think you can understand the book without knowing that world very well. Mm -hmm. But I think if you wanted to kind of like enjoy the book a little bit more, I think having an understanding of what's going on in that time and place in the Jewish community is really important. I think that you would get more out of understanding what the Shema is, the nightly prayer that Asher says. Mm -hmm. So, and, and there, you know, what the different celebrations and feasts are about. Absolutely, people would get more out of it. And if you want to pause and look them up and write them in the margins of your book, awesome. I didn't do that. And I loved the book the first time that I read it. Have you done it since? I actually am doing it more now. Okay. But okay. I just didn't want it to get in the way of like bogging down the plot and the characters. I right. just, I right. really like focusing on that first time through. Okay. So Heidi, you're reading it for the first time now, like mm -hmm. me. Where are you on all these things that kind of are like a foreign language? I mean, Yiddish mm -hmm. kind of is a foreign language, right? So <laughs> Right. It's a literal foreign language, yeah. right. Um, I think I'm more like Tim, just immersing myself, like swimming in it, right? Just like yeah. immersing myself in it and letting the book teach it to me from the inside instead of kind of coming at it as a research project from the outside. Mm -hmm. I, uh, uh, one of our close readers, Leah Brubaker, I think her name is, um, she came out of this culture herself and has posted on the Facebook page uh, an entire post kind of highlighting these terms and what they mean mm. within within her culture growing mm. up. And I found that very helpful um, a lot because just, I mean, I read through the whole thing and it's helpful in the sense of now I had a little bit of background knowledge. I'm, and so I don't have to like stop and pause and look something up to understand it within context, but also because it gives me insight into one of her close readers um, and just seeing mm. her, her own zeal to be understood right? Um, within this community of readers. And I relate to that in, in other ways. And and I think that your question about how do we approach that is an important one. Um, and because as I was reading this time, I, there were so many things I recognized from my own 
Christian culture, um, ways of thinking and the desire to instill from one generation to the next uh, a tradition and a faith, um, and the anxiety that comes from living in a hostile surrounding environment um, to something I care about very deeply, and especially as a mother for my own kids. Um, like I recognized that. So that felt like just very human. But then on the other side, there is it's an entirely foreign culture to me and one that I I I don't understand, don't relate to, don't think like. And so the kind of the paradox of that is really interesting to me. Mm. Okay, so that's one thing. There's the Jewish the Jewish right. culture aspect of the book. But then there's some things that are maybe a little more universal. Right. And I'm curious what themes are most compelling to you guys as you're reading this. Now, Tim, you've read it before. So actually, this time I'm going to ask Heidi uh, first, as someone who has not read the end of the book, doesn't know how it concludes. Right. What themes... I have no are, idea. Yeah, yep. what themes that are emerging are most compelling to you? Definitely the family dynamics and how those are forming Asher. Mm. Also, the question of Jewishness in a hostile world. Uh, that's compelling to me. And also the question of art and and his creative ability and how that is obviously the, I mean, from the very first paragraph, we know that that's what the book is, quote unquote, about, right? Um, the idea of art as, I don't know, as a solace, as a way to invent and define yourself, as a way... All of the complexities of of his gift, as he calls it, um, mm. that are just beginning to unfold in these first two chapters. I'm really, really interested in that. Mm. Okay, Tim, having read it then, Heidi mentions the family dynamics that are forming Asher being being Jewish in a wor- in a world that is hostile and a culture that is mm-hmm. hostile to it. And then I, I guess really it is the whole world. That's part of the big plot, you know, of this book. And then also art as solace is just the one sentence the the four word summary of what Heidi was saying, which is mm. more than that, but that's what that's how I'm summarizing that. So, what about for you? Would you add anything to that list? I think. I mean, Heidi touched on this: the dynamic between an individual and his community mm-hmm. in this book is so present, and it will become more and more present the older that Asher gets. Right now, he's lodged with you know in the care of his mom and dad. But as his artistic gifts grow, and as they're not really understood by his mom and dad or by his community, it just puts him in this kind of, it puts him in a, in a difficult position. And in a way, it puts his community in a difficult position also because mm. he is extremely gifted and they, and they love him and they're not quite sure what to do with him. Mm. Dynamic between the individual and the community. Yeah. Anything else? Any other things to stand out? I, I, I should. This is not really an answer to your question. I should just kind of say that this book is a heart book for me, in the same way that A River Runs Through It was a heart book for me. Because when I when we read A River Runs Through It, man, the relationship between the father pastor and the sons was it was so familiar to me. I mean, it was, I, I didn't grow up in Montana. I didn't grow up fly fishing, but so much about their dynamic was, I was like, man, that was my household. 
and strangely enough, I did not grow up in um, Judaic household, but man, I really, really recognize with the relationship between um, the mother and the father and the son. So, I mean, I was born in the evangelical world. My dad was a pastor. Mm. My mom was kind of, you know, not co-pastor, but, you know, she was front and center on Sundays. And my dad was very, very intelligent and very well-read. And I know that is um, something prized in the Hasidic community as well. And I, you know, growing up, I was at church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday, and all sorts of things in between. And I don't think it was nearly as, I know that it was not as structured and um, calendarized as the Hasidic Mm -hmm. community is. But boy, I, I really, I've kind of joked with my sister. I, I've <laughs> said, I, our family was very much more in the mold of, um, I think like a more traditional Jewish family in a lot of ways than mm-hmm. it was Christian, if that makes sense. We were Christian, of course, but our, our for me, our experience really falls in line with the experience mm. of Asher Lev in this book. Mm. What about for you, David? Was there some kind of themes or like, what was it that stood out to you? Uh, the, well, you know, this is a book that's, uh, there's a, you know, the, the term buildings Roman, like the idea of a coming of age novel. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the word is off the top of my head right now, but there is a similar word in German for the, the coming into maturity of an artist and so, mm. Heidi, you mentioned the idea of the artist, artist solace, but also the idea of an artist coming into maturity is interesting to me, because for so many artists, uh, art is is a way is is a solace, as you said, but it's also an attempt to understand ourselves and express right. what's going on inside of us. It, usually, because we don't know how to explain it, and so it sort of like comes out, and we see that a lot in this book. And so, the theme of him discovering that he loves this thing, but not knowing where, what role it should play in his life, finding that it is a solace to him, but not knowing if it's the right thing to do, turning, rejecting it in grief, you know, all these sorts of things. And that, that idea of how an artist becomes an artist, not just someone who does art, but becomes an artist is really compelling to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to the things that you all are saying. Yeah, um, and I think all these things, are, sure. uh, you know, like a, any great novel, all these themes are kind of woven together. Mm. Uh, so I think that these, what, five, five or six themes that we've kind of mentioned here probably will be things that we touch on a lot. Before this episode ends, I do want to talk a little bit about the Jewishness, the 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 sort of like history that Tim was talking about there, because I think that would, that would certainly be helpful for me. Um, and then in the winter, we're going to be reading... The Netanyahu's by Joshua Cohen, mm. which is another super Jewish book. In many ways, it's maybe even more Jewish, and it's mm. like really tied to the history of diaspora. Like, it's, and it really contemplates the nature of diaspora. And one of the reasons I ended up like, I mean, I love that book, but also I kind of feel like it's a good book to do next year is because it is an interesting book to combine with Asher Lev, because mm-hmm. we've never really done books about Jewish culture before, mm. and I feel like doing these two close together will be they'll speak to each other in a, in a good way yeah um, but I think getting a little bit of background will be helpful but before we do that I want to ask this question through the first two chapters what do you think this book does best 
Like what really stands out to you? And this is maybe a craft question if you want, but like Heidi, what for you, like me, we're both new to this book, but like what right. stands out as things that the most impressed you? Um, first thing I want to say is that I got Leah's name wrong. It's not Brubaker. It's, I don't actually know how to pronounce it. Kabaker maybe. So forgive me, Leah, for getting your name wrong. Um, Hey, Leah. I, yeah, sorry. And thank you so much for what you posted on the Facebook page. It's a really helpful guide. I I think that for me, since I'm not exactly like you, David, and I'm not noticing necessarily the craft as much as I am just experiencing it. So I can tell you the res- I could tell you what I'm experiencing and you can tell me what craft wise is creating that <laughs> and working. Um, I don't know if I can, and that can. is from the beginning, I am feeling exactly what this boy is feeling mm. and seeing the world through his eyes, even though I don't relate at all to his to the Jewishness that is so formative to him, right? I'm, But I'm also relating to the humanness. And so I think that what the book has done best so far is create that paradox that I was talking about of giving me a completely unique, immersing me in a completely unique culture and way of being in the world. Like mm-hmm. a zeitgeist and that's limited to his, um, uh, to his experience that is totally foreign to me while at the same time completely relating to him on a very human level it's both of those things and i'm not i don't have some special gift like he does but i understand what he's getting out of his drawing right how he's trying to build his world through his own limited view and making something bigger than himself and what that must feel like to a child and the contradictions of that and so i think just taking me out of myself and putting me inside of Asher Lev, which is the title of the book, right? My name is Asher Lev. Like I am Asher Lev through this mm. book. And I think that's what he's doing best so far. Mm. There's that. I, I remember hearing that um, Steven Spielberg, when he was directing ET, the camera level is the height of a child. The camera level is not at the height of an adult throughout that movie mm. because of course, plenty of adults saw that movie, but we're positioned to view the world through the eyes of eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. And it changes. There's a kind of wonder that it brings to mm. that movie yeah. that, that for me, I've never lost that wonder. I still, I know the flaws in that movie, but I just love that movie so much because it takes me back to being a child and seeing that movie and not understanding the adult world Yet, And I think this book, I mean, Heidi said something like this, this book does an incredible job of putting us at kind of like that lower camera height for the beginning of the book. And so the first few pages of the book are are kind of like the history. And then on page five, we're dropped into Asher Lev as a boy. And we're as confused about what's going on with his mom. We don't know exactly what his dad's work is, but we know it's scary and it's draining, extremely draining on his dad. But we don't really know the kind of weight of responsibility of Asher Lev's position as the firstborn of these two people, except for 
a paragraph we get on page five, I'll actually read it. It's the kind of conclusion of the opening preface of the book, which is all kind of like big picture historical about Asher Asher Lev's place in the Hasidic community. So last paragraph of that section, uh, page five. So little Asher Lev, born in 1943 to Rivka and Arya Lev in the section of Brooklyn known as Crown Heights, Little Asher Lev was the juncture point of two significant family lines, the apex, as it were, of a triangle seminal with Jewish potentiality and freighted with Jewish responsibility. But he was also born with a gift. It's such a great launching point. Mm-hmm. So, so Asher's position, he is no ordinary boy. He is extraordinary in two ways. He is the son of basically, or he's the kind of connection of two dynasties, and he has the, the a gift as a creator. So one little thing about um, the way that Hasidic Jews understand leadership is that it is um, it is dynastic. Hmm. It is not like you know. An, an evangelical pastor, or it's not even like a Catholic priest, you don't um, go through a certain level of qualifying exams and, you know, like get your seminary degree. It is much more hereditary. Of course, in that hereditary makeup, like um, like Charles now, King Charles now, he has been preparing his entire life to inherit the throne from his mother. So it's not as if he's been unprepared. Of course, he's been prepared. But the Rebbe in this is a hereditary leader who has been prepared from his father and grandfather, probably, to inherit this role and be the leader of his family and of his synagogue. And Asher Lev is the kind of connection point between two of those great lineages. So there's we don't we don't really see much of it in these opening parts, but it's always good to keep in the back of your head. Asher Lev is no ordinary boy. He is very important. He's a prince in a way. And you see that too, because different people around the community seem to look at him that way. Like the other right. boy who says, Oh, I wish I was the son of you know, so what of, of the Rebbe Lev, Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, or his, or his father. Yeah, exactly. His father's like the right hand man. Right. One yeah. thing I love about this two sentence, that paragraph is the way it ends because not only is it sort of showing the things that you were saying, the extraordinariness of him, but it says that he was the juncture point of two significant family lines, the apex of a triangle seminal with Jewish potentiality and freighted with Jewish responsibility. So he is, he has all this potential and thus he has all this responsibility. But then it says, but mm-hmm. before it introduces that Not gift. and. Right. It, the but. gift is the, is in contrast or in, in opposition. Absolutely. To the potentiality and the responsibility. And that's a really like it, even if you, we aren't, you know, we're analyzing this line, but even if, we didn't analyze that you feel that, but you know, that's every word matters so much because you feel the weight of words and you saying, but instead of, and we can analyze and break it down here. But when you read that the first time, that, but hovers over everything that, that you're about mm-hmm. to dive into. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I think Haim Potok does really well. I've, you know, 
he's he's so good at like these subtle comparisons and bringing uh, repetition in and making that repet you know like when the father says did you say your prayers and then you notice when he doesn't say the prayers and and that's like that goes back to what you're saying about a child right the child notices when there's an absence of something and so the way his memory is processing these absences is really interesting and so he, yeah P- Pozak has this ability this his writing is so subtle but it's not like esoteric or you know it's not Cormac McCarthy or Faulkner mm-hmm. but it has mm-hmm. so much subtlety to it I'm like really taken craft wise by the these first two chapters mm-hmm. I was kind of like okay I'm going to say something here. It's going to make me sound like I think I'm okay. I'll just say it. I was like, I'm not often like, wow, craft wise. This is like blowing me away because I read a lot of stuff. That's like just kind of par for the course craft wise. But this is when I see something like this, it's kind of like thrilling. It's like when you see when that amazing athlete comes along and you haven't seen them play, like, you, you know, you see someone live for the first time, right? You see like, LeBron James or Bo Jackson or someone live for the first time. And you're like, I can't believe a human being can do that. I'm never mm-hmm. playing basketball again. Cause I can't do that. That's how <laughs> I read this for two chapters. And I was like, I give up. I'm never writing again. I'm throwing all my notebooks away. For me, his, his style is very simple and elegant. Yeah. Right. Um, I, th- I see the craft through most obviously point of view. Like what Asher sees and does not see, what Asher wants and what Asher is deprived of, I think that is just, he's a master. Mm-hmm. He's a master at that. Mm-hmm. Heidi, have you, yeah, craft wise, what's, what's picked up to, what have you picked up on? I don't know. I think, well, I, I like what David said, the, um, his, uh, how would I say this? how he puts oppositions, like lots of juxtapositions and oppositions in tandem and kind of lets the tension just be there within the writing. And uh, there's things that a child, like Tim, that that expresses what you brought. That's kind of what takes, I think, the camera down to the level of a mm. child, uh, to use your analogy. Um, because that's what children can't do. They can't synthesize contradictory ideas. And mm. so they're forced to live in the tension without the sophistication in their minds to be able to resolve that in any way. Mm. Um, and that's very, very painful for a child. Uh, and 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 I think the, the main... Um, emotion or interior experience that I'm getting from Asher Levin, these first two chapters is bewilderment. Mm. Like he's just like utterly bewildered by this like deep contrast between vision and idealism and spirituality and the reality, the painful reality that his parents are not happy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that, and that he can't, fix that like he can't make it pretty and and that Mm. is yeah the beauty doesn't seem like it's going to solve that yeah and so within the craft there's this there's there's just a frank he just there's just this frank acknowledgement of that tension like here is the 
here's the thing that is good and that is good and true that his parents are trying to live up to, right? And then there's also here's the reality and of of their suffering. And then there's this child in the middle. And along with the child, we as the reader are there with him. And so we are experiencing the, the world through his eyes. We are seeing at his camera level because the writer, because our author is giving us this, this pendulum. And yeah. And there's no resolution in the writing. There's no, there's no moral to the story, right? There's, there's no, there's nobody there to, to help Asher figure that out. And so mm -hmm. he's bewildered and, and, um, and that, that comes because Potok is giving us these contradictory experiences and, and letting them just be intention all the mm -hmm. time. Well, and one of the things I like is that he, you talked about the bewilderment and he'll, it's not just the tensions so much. Well, it's not just the tensions. It's also what he doesn't answer. Because, exactly. you know, Tim, you, you alluded to this earlier when you're like, his father does something, but he doesn't come right out and tell mm -hmm. us. You know, mm -hmm. maybe someone will reveal, maybe his mom will say, like some character will reveal to Asher, answer some question. But we we never know more than Asher does. In fact, right. like some right. often, like we're, we're able to intuit things that he has yet to intuit. Because like we're adults and have that distance from exactly. the narrative, yes. but he he makes us feel that bewilderment, um, because you know it's with there's the, with the mom's illness, and there's that moment where you think she's gonna die because she's screaming, and right. you're like, wait, is the book gonna tell me? Is it, you just want to know the answer? Like, what did she die of? Right, mm. and then you realize it's not it's not that. It's in it's some in some ways it's something so even more complicated than that. I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? As right complicated in a different way. It's like a different sort of grief that settles on them all. A different kind of death, right? Like in a sense, yeah. there is a death going right. on in that moment for her, and so he was right, but he was wrong, and that's confusing, right? Right. And so, and for us as yeah. the reader, we just want to like. There's like 20 pages where we're like, okay, he does some, the father does something mysterious and he doesn't just come right out. Like he doesn't define anything. That's part of it, right? He doesn't tell us if you don't, if you're not familiar with this culture, he doesn't come out and define what the Rebbe is or what these relationships are or yeah, um, how these people got there. Or he doesn't tell us the story of Jewish history in Russia. And so right. that bewilderment that we have mirrors mirrors his own bewilderment because he has to learn it so we have to learn it with him and that's mm -hmm. you know he but he doesn't do it in a way where you're like as a reader you're just dejected because that there's a fine line there we could easily be like come on man like you're really it's not that you're just withholding it's that you're like we can feel you withholding that's like james like, joyce right right mm. like it'd be yeah. easy to just be like i'm done because you because i can feel you like dangling it over me he's not dangling anything the discovery is part of the story and we're along yeah. with Asher. We're not being told, oh, there's something right above you. And you just have to, you just kind of like have to, we're never going to like answer your question. We know the question, the answers are coming. And that is like, for lack of a better word, comforting in a way that he doesn't get to experience. Yeah. And so, but it allows us to have sympathy for him. So anyway, Tim, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to read a section from page 25. Um, of Asher observing his father's work. So Asher's inside and his dad is sitting at these two phones that he's kind of always on. 
So middle of 25, late one afternoon toward the end of March, I sat in my father's office drawing the trees I could see through his window. Actually, actually, this is at his father's office by this point, that I could see through his window. One of the telephones rang. My father put down his pen, picked up the receiver, and listened for a moment. I looked at his face and stopped drawing. Lines of anger were forming around his eyes and along his forehead. Two sharp furrows appeared above the bridge of his nose between his eyes. His lips became rigid. He gripped the phone so tight that I could see the knuckles of his hand go white. He listened for a long time. When he finally spoke, it was in a voice of cold rage. He used a language I had never heard before. He spoke briefly, listened again for, the length, for a length of time, spoke again briefly, then hung up. He sat at the desk for a moment, staring at the phone. He wrote something on a piece of paper, read over what he had written, made some corrections, then picked up the paper and went quickly from the office. I sat there alone. One of the phones rang. Then the second phone rang. The first stopped ringing. The second continued. The ringing sounded suddenly piercing and thunderous inside that little office. I went out and spent the rest of the day on the flagstone porch drawing the street. It's so... We get nothing about the meaning of these phone calls. We only get what he sees, like the phenomenon of what his father, how his father is reacting. And I think the added touch, just to make it even more powerful, is that we see it through the eyes of this developing artist, right? Like we get colors, his father's knuckles turning white. Yeah, I love this. You know, his eyes going black. We just see all these kind of, these things that an artist sees, even though he's a child. Yeah we might not ordinarily pick up in the moment and we don't know what it means. Like, why is his dad so angry? Why does his dad leave the office? What is happening? Yeah. We can supply based on our knowledge of history, some guesses about what's happening among Russian Jews, you know, in this moment, but we don't really know ourselves. We only know what we see through Asher. And we also know that he again takes solace in the work that he's doing in the art. I love what you're saying here because you know how this book really could easily fall into one of those annoying books about like a precocious child and you have to suspend all your disbelief because the child is so wise. But this book doesn't do that because his precociousness is not his wisdom. It's his gift. And the gift is not it's just his eye. He, it's his, the way he sees the world. It's yeah. not just that he can draw or paint. It's that he, he sees the world through the curious and insightful eyes of an artist. And so yeah. because we've been, we, we, as we're being, that gift is being revealed to us, we don't have to suspend our disbelief. We know it, it's slowly revealing to us the gift. It's showing us the gift without just, it doesn't have to tell us the gift because we are experiencing the gift at work as readers. Yeah. Like that's borderline genius, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Heidi, go it's ahead. so good. I think you were going to say something right as I was. Yeah, I was just thinking and I hadn't thought about this until now because I I was just experiencing the novel right, right. um yeah, yeah. but as we're talking about it his like this this whole these two chapters have these three streams of identity formation for this child right you've got mm. his 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 gift like this this urge that he has to uh, to draw and his skill at it, innate skill 
And then also his family, right? So that's his first circle thing, right? Like his inter his his circle of the self. And then his family, his which is the only society he knows. And then his Jewishness, which is the spiritual identity that's also a communal identity, that's also a cultural identity, and that is uh, throughout the novel put in opposition to the outside world, right? Mm. And and so he's he's forming even in these first two chapters like a very unique and strong selfhood, but within that selfhood. With it's there's contradictions and complications and 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 that I keep going back to the title right so mm. strongly assertive of selfhood my name is Asher Lev yeah, yeah. and um, it's not call me Ishmael no it's my name it's is not. Asher Lev yeah. my yeah. name is Asher Lev and he even says that when his uncle compares him to Chagall. Right, mm. not Chagall. My name is Asher Lev, right? And so he has this sense of self that's that many people might envy in a world that is so <laughs> um, devoid of those kinds of layers of identity. M many people, I have no idea who I am, right? Mm. But he has this very strong sense of self, but it is that strong sense of self, those multiple streams of identity that's creating how complicated it is to be himself. Mm. Um, and that I, that's very compelling to read about. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I he seems like Chaim Hotak is succeeding in his mission, so to speak, of creating this really completely unique kind of person and then putting us behind his eyes, even though we don't necessarily relate to those um, streams of identity. And yet we get to see the world through his eyes. And that's like, you know, really cool. Can we go ahead, Tim? I was just gonna say one of the other things that strikes out that, that he's so emphatic about is, um, remember when his father says something like you ought not paint, you ought not draw ugly pictures or something like that. And he's and and Asher Lev says, no, it's okay to, draw ugly pictures. I can't remember exactly what it is, but I'm thinking about like, this is a very patriarchal society. Mm. Um, and to speak back to one's father when he's kind of making a moral pronouncement is not uh, a frequent occurrence, I would say. It does not happen very frequently. But his father... I think might have been tempted to say something like, you ought not speak back to me, son, but he doesn't. He, he, he lets it go. There's something about um, this ability or this drive. At this point, it's probably more of a drive than it's an ability that Asher has. It's, um, it's, it's a little bit volcanic, you know? It's, it's already starting to appear kind of dangerous that he will even speak back to his father in defense of his own work, even though he's six years old, you know? Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and I think that goes back to like, we don't have to believe that he was painting things as good as Chagall. Right. But there's something in what he's doing that re is revealing to people how he sees that he sees the world in a way that he even he can't understand. It's, that's the thing. Like I'm, like I mentioned, it's not a book about a kid who sees the world and then can explain everything that's happening. It's a book about a kid who sees the world in a way that is 
that is compelling, even though he can't explain right. what he sees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the images are the, uh, you know, the attempt to understand it. Can we read the, um, the passage with the uncle? Um, I think sure. this yeah. is a really, that's so a great page section. 30, page 31. This is 31 and 32. I'll, I'll read a little bit and then turn it over to Heidi, I guess, since Tim's, you, you read a little bit. So, or we could do this as characters. Maybe there's too many characters. You I'm too. just going to read a little bit and then I'll pass yeah. it off. Okay. So top of 31. I was working on the third picture of my uncle when he and my father came into my room. They stood behind me. My uncle peered over my shoulder at the drawings. This is a six-year-old boy, he said softly. My father said nothing. A little Chagall, my uncle said. I felt more than saw. M- I felt more than saw my father make a motion with his hands and head. <laughs> I fix watches and jewelry. Sorry, I fix watches and sell jewelry. My uncle said, but I have eyes. Who's Chagall? I asked. A great artist, my uncle said. Is he the greatest artist in the world? He's the greatest Jewish artist in the world. Who's the greatest artist? My uncle thought a moment. Picasso, he said. Picasso, I said, tasting the name. Picasso. Is Picasso American? Picasso is Spanish, but he lives in France. What does Picasso look like? I asked. My uncle pursed his lips and squinted his eyes. He is short and bald and has dark burning eyes. How do you know about such things? My father asked. I read. This is my, one of my favorite lines in the book. I read. A watchmaker does not necessarily have to be an ignoramus. <laughs> it's great it's late it's late my father said to me get in your pajamas Asher I'll come back to put you to sleep a regular Chagall my uncle said I turned in my chair and looked up at him no I said my name is Asher Lev the two of them stared at me for a moment my father's mouth dropped open a little my uncle laughed softly this is six years old he said Good night, Asher then he said I want to buy one of these drawings. Will you sell it to me for this? He took a coin from his pocket and showed it to me. He picked up one of my one of the drawings and put the coin in its place. Now I own an early lev, he said with a smile. I did not understand what he was saying. I looked at my father. His face was dark. Good night, Asher, my uncle said. They went out of the room. The coin gleamed in the light of the lamp on my desk. I could not understand what had happened. I found myself suddenly missing the drawing and afraid to touch the coin. I wanted the drawing back. My father came into the room. He held the drawing in his hand. Without a word, he put it on the desk and took the coin. He was angry. Your uncle Yitzkov has a strange sense of humor, he said, and went from my room. I looked at the drawing. I felt happy to have it back but I felt unhappy my uncle had not kept it. It was a strange feeling. I could not understand it. My father returned to the room. I asked you to get into pajamas, he said. I began to undress. He sat on my bed, watching me. He did not offer to help. Is my papa angry? I asked when I came back from the bathroom. Your papa's tired, he said. And then he said, Asher, would you like to go to Uncle Yitchkoff for the Sidorim? I don't know how to pronounce that. I feel terrible. Sederim? Thank you. I don't know. I, I don't, that's... Yep. yep, so forgive us for getting it wrong, then, our listeners. Will you and Mama be with me? Your Mama can't leave the house. I want to be with you and Mama. He sighed softly and was silent a moment. Then he shook his head. 
Master of the universe, he said in Yiddish, what are you doing? Man, this is an incredible passage. So mm-hmm. good. It does all the things we've been talking about. It creates these tensions, oppositions, confusions for this child. It presents the theme of art and creation. Um, a little bit along of humor with in it. Jewishness, right? Um, and these multiple good people who are speaking opposing things into this mm-hmm. child, right? Mm-hmm. And how's this child supposed to make sense of that? Um, and he can't understand that this is personal, right? Um, for each person, they're wrestling with their own problems and their own issues, but kid doesn't understand that. Um, right, right. Plus, there's the the culture, the culture, the Jewishness, the family dynamics, the art, all of it. Mm. And we get to talk about Picasso, if we want to. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, Short and bald with dark, burning eyes. Well, and, <laughs> Sounds you know, about right. And then on the next page, he he talks a lot about like light and dark. So this child is seeing yes. light and darkness. So he sees that his he looks at his father, and his face was dark. And then it's he, they go out of the room, and then he look. It's a, he looks first. He sees his father. His face is dark. The father and the uncle leave the room. The next thing he sees is the coin gleaming in the light of the lamp on the desk. So it's like there's this opposition of light and dark, but it's like in the eyes of the young artist. And he's he's trying to figure out how to interpret where he sees light and where he sees darkness. And along with that, David, he's trying to learn how to create shade, right? Right. When yeah. he's drawing his mother's yeah. face and he can't, yeah. he doesn't know how, right? That's yeah. such an objective correlative. Like a child doesn't know how to see in gray. They don't know how to make gray out of the out of the adult issues that they're beholding, right? Mm. They just see the contrast and they can't they can't soften it. Mm. And then of course, Tim, there's the idea of uh, art being worth money. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And the guilt he feels about that. Yeah. Yeah. He wants the, and he wants the, he wants the coin back, but he also wants the painting back. Yeah. What were you going to say a second ago, Tim? I just wonder on, on, there are some, there's a subsequent passage in which um, his mother comes out and she's smoking and Asher kind of discovers gray in a way. I mean, I'm probably exaggerating, but he takes one of his mother's burned out cigarettes and he uses the ash to create Trying to kind the of shadows, yeah. Gray, yeah. And it is such a sophisticated move for a young boy, you know, that he uses a found object, this cigarette butt, and he uses it to kind of like create the effect that he wants. And I think that stuck out to me because I wonder if we might be seeing kind of some of what our author is hoping might be the resolution of this book. We have harsh contrasts, really harsh contrasts in this book, light and dark, insider, outsider. And what is going to happen? How is Asher going to resolve those things? Because we know already, or we should know, that he is positioned because of this gift that he has, he is not going to be like everybody else. And how is he going to resolve these things? Mm. Yeah, that's that's really good. Hey, okay. Before we wrap this up, let's let's just touch quickly on on some of the historical stuff. Is there anything that we think that Tim, in particular, I don't know if I don't know if you've done any reading on it, Heidi? Tim, do you do you anything you want to share that you think as we're going into the rest of this book, people should really know? 
Can I do like a 60 second overview of kind of like modern Judaism? Let's make so, it 260 seconds. Okay. Um, before 19th, uh, excuse me, the 18th century, there is like what we would today call Orthodox Judaism. It wasn't, it didn't have a modifier in the 18th century because there was only one kind of Judaism, but it's what we would today call Orthodox Judaism. In Germany, in the 18th century, there's a kind of modernizing movement that takes place. And you can see the effects of the modernizing movement um, make their way into Christianity. There's a kind of modernistic drive um, in Christianity. That same modernizing drive arrives in Judaism. So um, Reform Judaism is a kind of counter-movement to what is just like mainstream Judaism. And so for the first time, kind of in the history of Judaism, to make things relatively simple, there are now two branches of Judaism, Reform Judaism, a product of modernity, a product of the Enlightenment, a drive to kind of um, have the Jewish community join the burgeoning nation states of the 18th century. So like the nation state is not even really a thing previous to the 18th century. So those Jews who are living in what we would call Germany are a people without a land. And um, they just are kind of a community in and of themselves, but they're not like, they wouldn't, this is anachronistic to say it, they're not like voting members of society, but Reform Judaism is starting to move in that direction. Plus, uh, there's kind of a move to drop some of the supernatural elements of Judaism. And so they would look back, would Reform Jews on um, what the Jewish Bible and say those miraculous elements we view now with suspicion. Whereas Orthodox Judaism would say, no, absolutely, no way. Moses crossed the Red Sea with the people because God parted the waters. So there'd be a real rift there between Reform and Orthodox Judaism. A little bit later, 19th century, another branch forms. It's called, and this is confusing, conservative. You know, it's I'm a conservative Jew, someone would say, but it's not, it's a really confusing name for us because it's almost like a middle point between reform and orthodox Judaism. So to our ears, something like moderate Judaism, I think would be more accurate. Okay. Now, uh, Asher Lev and the Lev family are Hasidic Jews. So Hasidic Jews or Hasidic Judaism is born in Eastern Europe. Their kind of founder is the Bel Shem Tov, who is Orthodox Jew, who really loves to emphasize the imminence of God. God is not just off in the heavens, but God is present in a divine spark in each one of us and in the everyday habits, not only of our lives, but the objects of our lives. And the Bel Shem Tov, to not speak too irreverently, he's just really, really interesting. He's really cool. Hasidic Judaism is kind of like an outflow of that. It spreads relatively relatively rapidly. And its biggest pocket right now is still to this day, Brooklyn. 
Brooklyn, New York. So of course it exists overseas. It exists still in Eastern Europe and in Russia, but it's the largest number of followers of Hasidic Judaism would be in Brooklyn. So they would look in a lot of ways, just like Orthodox Jews with a few different, um, a few, a few differentiators, namely those big round um, fur lined hats that would be pretty popular in Eastern Europe um, in 18th, 19th, 20th century. So that's like, yeah, the crash course in modern Judaism. One thing that might show up a little bit later, and I think we can wait until later to talk about this, David, is like Zionism as a movement, because that's a big part of the Netanyahu's. Yeah. Yeah. And so it might be fun to talk about that on a subsequent episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, where did Zionism come from? What are the goals of Zionism, et cetera? And then one thing that will come up that we're seeing emerge as a theme is, of course, this, the persecution. Yeah. So Jews in America are looking at Jews in the homeland, and they're, they're looking at, this is coming out of the Holocaust. And, you know, there's that scene where the, the one man says, I don't remember what his name is off the top of my head. He says, the boy Asher says something like, "Well, why did no, why is no one doing anything in Russia or something?" And the man mm. says, "They're doing exactly what they did during when the Nazis got to the Jews. They're doing absolutely yeah. nothing." And so the Jews are looking at they've just come out of the Holocaust, they experienced that. Some of them escaped, but almost all of them lost somebody, and then now they're entering a new Holocaust. Mm. Although we don't necessarily call it that under Stalin, and a lot of um if I'm not mistaken, a lot of like the Cossack stuff comes from like, there's this deep conflict between the Cossacks and the Orthodox, the Hasidic Jews in like what Mm. is now Ukraine, that part of Russia. So they're looking at that and they're saying, well, we've been abandoned once already and now we're being abandoned again. And so there's this fear, this anxiety, this, this sort of bubbling rage, all these sorts of things that are rightly hovering that are that are hovering over this kid's experience Mm. and so it's it's the 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 layers of grief he's discovering it's there's grief within the individual family Mm. and that's trickling down to him but there's also a larger corporate collective grief community grief that his people are living through and that he's growing up in and that he's going to have to figure out how to process and that's tied to the history of their people for millennia but also very specifically in a deeply tragic and deeply traumatic way with like basically back-to-back Holocaust that he's, that the story kind of begins between them. Like he's born at the end of one Holocaust and he's coming of age as the other one's kicking off like five years later. Yeah. Heidi, were you going to say something? No, I just, there's so many, there's so much deep, like persecution really has been the lot of Jewish identity since for forever. Like I've, I'm teaching this early moderns class and we've been, and we've been reading a merchant of Venice and reading a lot and doing a lot of research on the experience of Jewishness in England. And it was the persecution is part of Jewish identity and it's, I don't know. I feel like sad about that. Mm. Just like feel the weight of that. Yeah. Even though it like I it's it shouldn't be that way. 
You know, it's interesting because I read that Haim Potok decided he wanted to be a writer because he read Brideshead Revisited. Yeah. Which yeah. is in some ways about the complex nature of being Catholic as an outsider. Yeah. And so right. I, I imagine like he read that and he looked at it from a craft perspective and the writing perspective and it's like sets his intellect and his create, creative life on fire, right? And his creative sense on, senses on fire. But he also identified with this sense of being an outsider in a world that is is so established hostile. And, yeah. and so hostile to you. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, let's wrap this up. Tim, any final thoughts for this week before we dig into chapters three, four, and five for next week? No, I don't have any thoughts. I have like a, a jumble of thoughts, but nothing worth saying. Save them for next time. I'll save them for next time. Heidi. Yeah, same. I really appreciate the background you gave, Tim. I didn't know a lot of that. So you're just, you're very useful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, actually, I do have one more thing to say about Hasidic Judaism. Okay. Um, it better be useful. Otherwise, your reputation is I hope is it's useful. Line. You guys, I hope it's useful. <laughs> um, it's joyous. Yeah. Bel Shem Tov was, um, he wanted to celebrate the traditions and celebrate life. And it's a, like, they love dancing and movement. It's not just being in the library. It's not just being at yeshiva, but there's a joy and an exuberance that's part of the Hasidic community. And it's a little bit hard to see right now in the book, but it's there. It, this is a book of mourning. There's so much mourning. There's so many tall shadows being cast in Brooklyn from history. Um, yeah, but I just yeah. wanted to add that, that, that Hasidism is born of this kind of like embrace of life and embrace mm. of the master of the universe's care for us despite the atrocities that have happened. It's almost like the 20th century existed to destroy Jewish joy. Oh, man. Like, it, if you look at this, the persecution that they experienced as people worldwide for a hundred, you know, especially the first 75 years throughout Europe and Russia, it's like, I mean, it's, that's heartbreaking mm. to think about. It's true. Mm. I think that that, oh, go ahead, David. Sorry, well, I just, well, I can't, I can't, the, like, it's, it's in some ways it, it reminds me of reading about, you know, like reading Ernest Gaines or reading W.E.B. Du Bois or someone like that, where I can't, the best I can do is try to like be present in the story to try to understand what they went through, but there's no way to really be, there's no way to really under, be able to understand. Right. Like to really empathize with that kind of suffering. I I respect that, but I also think I respectfully disagree with that because I think that there's, I, I think that the 20th century tyranny is an ongoing attempt to stamp out any kind of religious joy. And and that was Stalin's okay. intent. Eighty million people died in I see, Bolshevik yeah, I see what Russia, you're and and so I think all of us, and I, I think that's what I mean. Like all of us are fighting to maintain our spiritual identity in a hostile 20th century world that is attempting essentially to stamp out all suffering. But along, which is noble, maybe, but along with that all the the joy all joy right and and so i 
I do think we're not necessarily part of an oppressed racial group, but I think all of us are attempting right now to fight for being able to have a, for, for, for a communal identity that's founded in spirituality. And that's very human. And that's why I appreciate, that's why books like this are so important. And that's why I really like this book so far so much because it gives me an opportunity to go behind the eyes of, of people who have been doing this far longer than we have. And, Mm. um, and, and I, and our, you know, and our God's people, and I, I, I want to learn from that. Um, but I also don't necessarily feel on the outside of the fight, if that makes sense. Although I, I like I said, I totally understand and respect what you were saying in the yeah, sense yeah. of like, we, we are not part of black culture. We're not Jewish, culture, but we are in a sense, like all trying to find a way to maintain a communal ability in like a globalist attempt to kind of suppress all that and make us all the same. And I, I love that, that we're all in that together, even Mm -hmm. though we are different cultures. Tim, should we end there? I don't know if, I don't know if we, I can tell you if we want to debate this, we don't have time to do it right now. (laughs) I would love to have this discussion. It's probably not like yeah, at the end of a long episode, now now is probably not the time. Um, but this would be. I mean, I think that this is this book asks questions like this. Um, so it's a small community that Asher is part of. It's not part of the kind of like Mac world that is Brooklyn in the nineteen fifties. Um, so I would love to have that discussion. I think I'm a probably, yeah, I'm just not in the same place that Heidi is, though I share her concerns. Yeah, I definitely would like to talk about this. Okay, well, let's wrap this episode up there. We've got plenty to talk about over the next few weeks. As I said, we'll be talking about chapters three through five. Um, over on the Close Reads uh, HQ subscriber exclusive show, we are about to begin, we're going to do our Q&A for East of Eden, and then we're going to be diving into Till we have faces, which is not a long book, but we also don't have a long time to the end of the year. So we're going to take the last several weeks of the year to, to do that. And then we're going to announce the long book that we're going to do for the first quarter to a half of 2023 here pretty soon. Um, don't forget, it's in the show notes. Uh, it's in the description to this show, but you can get either two months free or a big discount on an annual subscription at Classical U. Uh, You can just go to classicalu.com if you want. You can find Tim's course, but uh, we've got those two links there where people can get those discounts. Um, Check out what Tim's doing. Check out all the other great courses on Classical U. Um, You're going to be thrilled at Tim's course. I'm going to... I guarantee it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's really great. And uh, I'm I'm really glad to be able to stump for it, I guess is what I'm saying. And Tim, you know what? It's great to have you back. It's really nice to be back. And one thing I like about having you back is that we can end the episode with you saying, I disagree with Heidi. We'll talk about it later. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe you disagree with Heidi, I think is what you were saying. But it all comes down to definitions, right? So, right. All right. Heidi, anything else? Nope. All right. Well, for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.